I decided this year to abridge the opening comments. It's always 15 minutes, and I never have 15 minutes worth of things to say, at least not right now. I usually do, as Roger knows. Uh, by the way, I'm Trevor Burris. I'm the editor-in-chief of the Cato Supreme Court Review and a research fellow here at Cato uh, in the Robert A. Levy Center for Constitutional Studies. And welcome to the Cato Institute. We're not in our usual environs in the F.A. Hayek Auditorium, which if you can peek in there, which we have Cato-branded hard hats, by the way. Uh, but if you can peek in there, it's, uh, it's going to be turned into a much more optimized for web streaming service, uh, which is most of our audience today, actually, uh, welcoming our audience on the web, welcoming our audience on C-SPAN, uh, welcoming to you here for our 21st annual Constitution Day. Now, 21 years ago, when I was waiting tables and playing in metal bands and backpacking Europe, uh, Roger Pilon and James Swanson there inaugurated this event and inaugurated the Cato Supreme Court Review, uh, which this is my fourth one editing. I've worked on 12. I was an intern who did very bad site checking, I know. Um, and that was my first Constitution Day, and this is my 12th. I asked James today, who came up with our citation style, which I've decided I'm going to change next year because I have that power. So uh, respect to James, but we're going to change it to just Blue Book. You know, we're not, we're not going to be doing this stuff anymore. Um, the Cato Supreme Court Review is the nation's first published law journal covering the most recent decisions of the Supreme Court term. And it's a quixotic endeavor. You have to publish this thing pretty quickly. I think I remember some of August, uh, but not most of it. Uh, I did, I did get through all the Star Wars movies, though, because I put them on the background while I'm like doing hand edits at like 3 in the morning, so I got through them like multiple times. Uh, and I'm wearing a Star Wars tie to commemorate that. Um, and today we commemorate, well, tomorrow, we commemorate the day 235 years ago that the framers of the Constitution decided to sign that document, a Constitution at the time. And of course, it would not become the Constitution of the United States until it was ratified by the people and came into place in 1789. Uh, Ilya Shapiro is not here, but he will be here later. Uh, I also will call him out whenever he walks in. Um, today, the Constitution, of course, has many detractors from both the left and the right. It is regarded as antiquated by some, uh, with outdated concepts. Of course, here at the Cato, we adhere to the Madisonian vision, Cato is doing, we adhere to the Madisonian vision of the Constitution, which is freedom and individual liberty through limited government. Uh, now, this year, of course, was quite controversial. If you look at my forward, one of the things that I was thinking about this year was whether or not in the course of a week or six-day period when the Supreme Court decided a case about guns and then a case about abortion you might have heard about and then a case about climate change, there were a lot of people who said, well, here we go. We have Republican-appointed justices who love guns, hate abortion, and are skeptical of climate change. And that was how they interpreted the court's work. Of course, for originalists, we did something different. And many originalists said, well, no, guns is in the Constitution. So they enforced that. And then the abortion question was arguably not in the Constitution. Uh, we can talk about that. And Evan Burnick will here to talk about that. And returning the uh, administrative agency power to Congress. Uh, these were both pro-democratic decisions. But I think it's interesting to ask now whether or not a fully originalist court will be perceived as legitimate by the American public, which is what I write about in my foreword. Now, for the thanks, there's so many thanks here. I want to first thank uh, Roger Pilon, who saved me from, I don't know what, I, probably corporate law. 
when I was an intern uh, and hired me. And as you gave me many dressing downs over the years and hard editing uh, and founded and created the ethos of the Robert A. Levy Center for Constitutional Studies. And while I'm at it, I'll, try, I'll thank James Swanson, who, by the way, if you don't know, wrote an excellent book called Manhunt, which is about the hunt for John Wilkes Booth, which is being produced into an Apple show. So that's good news for James. Um, of course, I'd like to thank all of my colleagues who helped with some of the editing, Jay Schweikert, Walter Olson, Clark Neely, who currently leads the department. And I'd like to thank Will Yateman for his edits on Jonathan Adler's piece. Uh, and I'd like to thank all the associates, Nicole Sayad Brimbridge, uh, Gregory Mill, Isaiah McKinney, uh, our intern Chris Condon, uh, for doing this sort of editing and fly specking stuff, which I quite frankly don't have the time for quite often because we do it so quickly, so I rely on them. I'd very much like to thank Tommy Berry, who is the managing editor of the review, which was my former position. Uh, he did an excellent job stepping up and helping out. I'd like to thank Laura Bondonk, who came in as my associate and had never worked on the review before in any capacity and had to learn all of that stuff herself. Uh, of course, we have to thank our excellent events team which is second to none as far as I'm concerned in this town, Linda and the whole event staff, Kiana, who used to work on this event, and Katie, who's standing right there, who had to also have a trial by fire to put this event on. Uh, now, some of the logistics, we run a pretty tight ship here uh, with the panels. You'll see in your packets who's going to be on the panels, and of course, you have a copy of the Supreme Court Review. Uh, on that point, if you find an error in the Supreme Court Review, I do not want to hear about it. <laughs> this is very important. I, I sent that off, and then it's just like, you know, into your wind, and then they're gone. And so I don't want to hear about it, as I'm sure there are some. Um, now, bathrooms, since we're up here in the George M. Yeager Conference Center, uh, bathrooms are just right there. You probably saw there's other ones downstairs next to the elevator. And if you go all the way downstairs, there's other ones down the hall. Uh, we'll be serving lunch in this room at 12, uh, and then we'll come back for the panels. And we have the Looking Ahead panel, which we'll have... Billy Shapiro, who you can't really get rid of him as much as he could, but he'll be back to write, he wrote the article in the review. Although, see, he's not here. When he submitted the article to the review, he edited 11 volumes of the Spring Review. His footnotes were all wrong. And I was like, are you kidding me? Seriously? I said, well, if he didn't, he, I think he was just trying, trolling me, uh, ultimately. Um, and then, of course, we have Professor Akhil Amar, uh, arguably the preeminent scholar, constitutional scholar uh, in the country to deliver the B. Kenneth Simon, lex B. Kenneth Simon lecture at the end of the day. And then there will be a reception, I think, assuredly on the roof. I don't think that rain is in the forecast, so it should be on the roof for closing out. And then after that, I get to not think about the Supreme Court review for three whole months. <laughs> and I'm going to Iceland. Uh, so I'd like to invite uh, for the first panel, uh, Will Gateman coming up here. Uh, Will, can I, you, is your public announcement or on your, Will is leaving Cato to go to the Pacific Legal Foundation, uh, which is increasingly like a large, uh, I feel like it's sucking up everyone in my life. Everyone works for Pacific Legal Foundation now. Uh, and we wish him well. Uh, and uh, I was telling Tommy today, I remember your very first Constitution Day, you were like, I've never moderated a panel before. And I was like, really? You've been in DC for 10 years, you've never moderated a panel? Uh, and I, he was like worried, and then he cut up here with his will style, which he will show off now, easygoing and, and fun. Uh, and he, he also contributed an article to the review. Uh, he was complaining he didn't get a write about West Virginia, John, uh, but you guys can duke it out. Uh, so I'd like to invite the first panel up to talk about constitutional structure, Jen, Ilya, John, and Will, and I will be back to moderate panel three uh, and, uh, at the end of the day, so thank you very much.
Thank you so much, Trevor. Um, I'll just note that uh, PLF gave me the opportunity, um, one that Cato couldn't, I mean, I love Cato, the opportunity to work with my gorgeous wife. Um, so welcome, my name is William Yateman, or I guess that's already been established. Um, I work here at the Cato Institute's Center for Constitutional Studies. For our first panel, we'll be discussing cases from last term that relate to constitutional structure. So this panel will reflect a recurring theme throughout the day. Uh, there was a, a lot to last term besides Bruin and Dobbs. Um, as to how this will work, I'll introduce each of our speakers in turn. Um, we'll start with Professor Jonathan Adler. Um, oh, I should have noted. We'll introduce each of our speakers in turn. Um, they'll speak for a bit. We'll open it up to some back and forth, and then office, uh, I'm sorry, audience Q&A. Um, so starting with Jonathan Adler. Um, he is the Johann Verhey, did I pronounce that correctly? Thank you. Memorial Professor of Law at the Case Western Reserve University School of Law. So like all of our panelists, Jonathan has a sterling CV. Um, to wit, I believe he's among the top five most cited administrative law scholars. That's no small matter. Um, I did some poking around, and I learned that Adler has set up an amazing outdoor theater at his home, and that is because he's adamant about family movie nights. But that was pretty cool. Um, Professor Adler will present his chapter on West Virginia v. EPA. So thank you. I can find myself. There's a, there's a handy clock. Uh, thank you, Will. It's, it's a pleasure to be here. It's always uh, fun to be back at Cato and uh, to be here for Constitution Day, to see Roger, who I used to uh, debate constitutional law questions with when I was a mere college student in the, in the basement of the old Waterston House uh, in my first summer uh, being involved with Cato. Uh, and it's a pleasure to talk about West Virginia University's EPA, um, a fun case, a case that concerns the Clean Air Act, which um, is an act that uh, some of us have learned to, to know and love uh, very deeply, or at least have a love-hate relationship with. Um, and just to kind of uh, give the quick overview or the quick summary of my views about Western University's EPA, I have very mixed feelings about this case. I think as a pure matter of law, the court reached what was clearly the correct result in that the EPA was asserting authority that Congress had never delegated to it. On the other hand, uh, the sort of power that EPA wanted to exercise is as far as climate policies go, certainly better than a lot of the alternatives that EPA has been delegated the authority, or at least has arguably been delegated the authority to do. The court reached the correct result in the case, but it's not clear the court should have heard the case, not because it lacked jurisdiction, as some claimed. It certainly had jurisdiction, and when you read the opinions, it's clear that uh, the jurisdictional arguments were interesting, but never had much substance to them. But it's not really clear that the case should have been before the court anyway, and I'll say a little bit about that. And I also have mixed feelings because while I like the results, the opinions are underwhelming, um, all of them. Um, none of the opinions in the case really take seriously the text and structure and operation of the Clean Air Act. Uh, the majority utterly fails to do the heavy lifting that certainly was done in some of the merits briefs and in some of the, the amicus briefs to really look at how the Clean Air Act operates, how Section 111 operates. 
Uh, and as a consequence, the dissent gets to pretend as if you can resolve the whole case by focusing on a single word, um, which was an interesting posture to see Justice Kagan take uh, in an opinion given some of the things she has said about statutory interpretation in the past. And the decision also missed an opportunity to bring clarity and principle to what is a very important underlying question, which is how do we understand the delegation of power to agencies? How do we understand and determine what power it is that agencies have been delegated uh, by Congress? And uh, this is an area of law where the court has given hints and made gestures, uh, but has not really given the, the degree of clarity that it, it could have. And this case presented, I, in my view at least, uh, a perfect opportunity to do so, and that's an opportunity missed. So let me give a little bit of background and, and then flesh out uh, some of these points, and of course the paper uh, uh, fleshes out some of these in more detail. For those of you that have not spent years reading and rereading and trying to make sense of the Clean Air Act, let me give you a little sense of what this, this law uh, or this case was about. So at a broad level of generality, it was about the scope of EPA's power to regulate uh, greenhouse gas emissions from power plants. In particular, what EPA could do when setting standards of performance that power plants must meet in terms of their greenhouse gas emissions. Um, there was a debate over whether greenhouse gas emissions should be considered pollutants under the Clean Air Act. That question was resolved uh, definitively, I would argue erroneously, but nonetheless definitively in Massachusetts versus EPA. And since then, the court has recognized that, um, that while greenhouse gases are pollutants for purposes of the Clean Air Act, or assuming they are pollutants for purposes of the Clean Air Act, that does not give the EPA the authority to alter the Clean Air Act or its operation so as to make it operate better for greenhouse gases, because greenhouse gases are not traditional pollutants. They're not emitted in the volumes that traditional pollutants are. The, the, the effects they have are not the effects that traditional pollutants have. And the way, you, if you one were to try to reduce them, the way one would try and reduce greenhouse gas emissions is not the way one would try and reduce particulates, nitrogen oxides, hydrocarbons, and so on, particularly if one wanted to do it in a remotely efficient way. Uh, but the Supreme Court has made, had made clear long before this case that just because there are better ways to deal with greenhouse gases does not give EPA the authority to massage, to stretch, to rewrite, to repurpose provisions of the Clean Air Act that aren't a good fit. In the Utility Air Regulatory Group versus EPA case, the Supreme Court made that very clear in language that you can go back and, and, and pick out passages from UARG and they tell you exactly what the court was gonna do here. Um, so section 111 of the Clean Air Act uh, is a provision that allows the EPA to set standards of performance for specific categories of sources of air pollutants. And what the EPA does is it's supposed to determine what is the best system of emission reduction that has been adequately demonstrated considering costs and a few other factors. And then that is the standard that categories of that source are required uh, to meet in terms of their emission reductions. And when it comes to 
greenhouse gases out of power, out of coal-fired power plants, if you do the thing that traditionally you do under Section 111, that you traditionally do under other provisions of the Act that anticipate technology-based or method-based uh, uh, standards, you do heat rate improvements or something like that, and you don't get much in the way of reductions. Uh, and that's just the way it is, because the other things you might want to do, like carbon capture, well, it's hard to argue that at least at this point that's been adequately demonstrated considering cost, which is one of the other requirements of Section 111. And that was certainly true when the Obama administration was drafting the Clean Power Plan. So the Obama administration said, well, this language, best system of emission reduction, read in context, understood as it has always been understood since that language was written in the act, um, the way the act's operated based on what was written in 1970, 1977, and 1990, that anticipates things you do at the facility, within the facility, within the control of the firm that owns a particular facility. But that language, best system of emission reduction, certainly seems broader, certainly when taken in isolation. And if we're talking about power plants, we're really talking about facilities that are part of a broader system, the electric grid. And if we're we're concerned about that, well, then maybe we reduce emissions by saying you coal plants operate less, gas plants operate more, renewables operate more, and that sort of training is a much more efficient way of reducing emissions. That's certainly true. And the Obama administration thought you could take this phrase, in some respects, read it out of context and say, well, we're still, this is a system of emission reduction. It's just not the type of system of emission reduction that had ever been anticipated by those writing, voting on, or implementing the act ever before. And so that was the basis of the Clean Power Plan. Uh, now you may wonder, again, if you haven't followed this case, well, why are we talking about an Obama administration regulation? We're talking about a decision that the Supreme Court handed down in 2022. Well, the Clean Power Plan was stayed by the Supreme Court, and that's a whole fun story, which if I had time, I'd get into it, but, but the Supreme Court stays the Clean Power Plan. The, Obama, the Trump administration comes in, and repeals the Clean Power Plan. And it does so on the basis of saying the Obama administration misread the statute. We think the language of the statute is much narrower, much more constraining. And so that both means the Clean Power Plan is illegal and an alternative that was referred to as the ACE rule is the only rule that is consistent with the statute. Like anything the EPA does of any significance, that was challenged in court just as the Clean Power Plan had been. Uh, the DC Circuit uh, invalidates um, the Trump administration rule. I'll just note, and as someone who clerked on the DC Circuit, this was curious. A decision of this magnitude on a regulation of this importance was issued the day before inauguration. Um, Unusual. Uh, the DC Circuit has tons of cases uh, in that 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 it's dealing with in transition years, and knows full well that as soon as the transition occurs, a new agency, uh, the new agency heads in the Justice Department may have opinions about which cases it's once stayed, which cases it once remanded to the agencies, and understands that. You know, adding a decision that may bind the agency's hands in one way or the other is something that might not be necessary. It was certainly curious that an opinion like this would come out on January 19th. Had it not come out, we would never, on that day, had it been held for a day, for two days, we probably never would have had this case. 
Um, we had the decision come out, peti sir, petitions are filed, something else about why we should never have had this case. The Justice Department opposes certiorari. We would, we, that's not a surprise. The Justice Department raises no jurisdictional concerns in its brief. It has a brief mention that, well, this might be an advisory opinion because we might decide to do something different because the Clean Power Plan's outdated. But never in the Solicitor General's opposition to cert does the Solicitor General suggest what is the obvious way to handle that problem, which is to, which is to ask the Supreme Court to grant vacate and remand, which is, again, a normal thing for the SG's office to do in this situation. There's an old regulation. It's out of date. The regulation that was just struck down by the DC Circuit, we don't want to defend because it's the other team's regulation. It's not ours. We don't want to defend that. We'd like a clean slate so we can come up with a regulation under the act that is consistent with our policy and that makes sense given what's changed in the industry since then. That would be the routine thing to do, not mentioned in the, in the cert stage brief. It is finally raised in the merits brief, but it's too late. You're not going to convince the court to do something like that in the merits briefing. If you want to convince the court to send the, case, send the issue back as a mulligan, you'd have to do that at the cert stage. And again, curious why that was not done. Uh, so we get the case. Uh, when the case is granted, there was no question what the outcome was going to be. There was no question. The court did not take certiorari to do anything other than overturn the extremely broad interpretation of the Clean Air Act that the DC Circuit had issued. The only question was how the EPA would lose. There was some thought that maybe we would get a very narrow textual opinion, the sort of opinion that Clean Air Act geeks like me love, where really, you know, rolling up your sleeves and getting into the bowels of the act. Um, but again, odd case to take if that's really what you wanted to do. And let's face it, I don't think Supreme Court justices enjoy digging into the Clean Air Act as much as, say, DC Circuit judges. Another possibility a lot of people talked about was a broad non-delegation ruling, but that really wasn't in the briefs either. Um, it was in the background. It was a looming presence, because if you're talking about what, how broad is the power that an agency has been delegated, certainly the prospects of a non-delegation doctrine looms large in that, in, in that uh, context. But the briefs themselves were really just saying, look, conclude that EPA was not delegated this power. Major questions was on the court's mind. We knew it was on the court's mind because we had just seen uh, the decision in the eviction moratorium case that made reference to the major questions idea. We knew the OSHA case uh, was coming. The question was really how the court was going to approach the major questions doctrine. Was it going to say the major questions doctrine? It's kind of like a canon of construction, a tiebreaker, something that helps us resolve an ambiguity in a statute, or is it going to be something we throw on the table right up front and say this is going to uh, kind of predetermine our, our statutory interpretation? Um, and the latter is what the court did, right? Chief Justice right up front in his opinion says, you know, there's a way we normally interpret statutes in this sort of context. We read things in context, yada, yada. But there are extraordinary cases where we do something different. Cases of economic, great, great economic and political significance. And this is one, and in effect loads the dice for the inquiry uh, to follow, and in effect excuses him from having to actually deal with the details of the Clean Air Act. It's an easy way to deal with the case. It's a way for the court to avoid perhaps saying something about the details of the Clean Air Act that might be wrong and that might you know, hamstring the EPA or the DC Circuit going forward. 
But as a doctrine to be administered by lower courts, it's something of a squishy mess. Because the question now for lower courts is, well, is this the sort of case where we do the normal thing of looking at the statute and figuring out what power was delegated to the agency, recognizing perhaps the longstanding principle, the principle that was a staple of statutory interpretation cases and, and treatises in the late 19th century that you should be suspicious of, of claims of implied delegation, that claims of broader delegation of authority require greater evidence than narrower claims of delegation. But instead, do this threshold inquiry, is this a major question? Are there enough zeros after the dollar sign? Um, is it, were there enough segments about this question on CNN? Was the bill that was introduced in some committee ever given serious consideration so we can say Congress thought about addressing this? These are not inquiries that courts are really good at. But those are the sorts of inquiries West Virginia tells lower courts they're supposed to be doing um, uh, in, ter in terms of figuring out major questions. I've probably gone on longer than I'm supposed to, so let me just say two really quick points and then stop. Um, the good thing about at least the way Chief Justice Roberts justifies his approach is that he's, he does identify the underlying principle, which is an essential one, not a non-delegation doctrine, but what we might call a delegation doctrine, a doctrine that understands that agencies only have power if it has been delegated to them. Something the court has said repeatedly, something that agencies often forget. If they want to exercise power, any power, they have to find that Congress has delegated it to them. If there is no delegation, there is no power. If there's no delegation, there's no deference. If there's no delegation, there's no authority to tell power plants or anybody else what to do. The problem is, is that from that principle, one can actually spell out a, 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 a meaningful way of thinking about the way instruments like legislation delegate power, how we interpret those sorts of instruments, how we think about them in terms of agency principles, not agencies in terms of administrative agencies, but agencies in terms of principal agent relationships, and recognize the broader the claim of delegation, the greater the showing we should expect. Because we don't expect the drafters of instruments to hide elephants in mouse holes. But that doesn't suggest we should try and distinguish between major and minor questions, it means we should make sure that whatever power is claimed has in fact been delegated and is consistent with the text and structure of the underlying statute. The other thing that I think is, is somewhat good about uh, uh, the opinion, and again, this is my last point for sure, um, is that it recognizes one of the particular problems in this context is, arises from the fact that Congress doesn't like to revisit these statutes. And we have lots of contemporary problems that raise important policy questions that Congress has not spoken to. And we have a trend that is not new, that did not begin with the Obama administration. It goes back at least to the Clinton administration of the executive branch saying, well, if Congress is not gonna give us the power we want, we will figure out if there's something they gave us before which will do the trick. I kind of think about this when I'm it's like when I'm doing you know, some kind of uh, amateur repair work uh, at, at home, and I bring a wrench upstairs, and I realize I need a hammer. But I don't have a hammer, I, I grab the wrench. Well, you know, if you turn the wrench on its side and you angle it just right, you can make it work like a hammer. And 
that's essentially what agencies have been doing. You know, we've been given wrenches, but we'd rather have a hammer. Let's find a hammer. Let's make this system of emission reduction not be what Congress was actually giving the agency the power to do, but uh, something that'll be more useful given the problem we're trying to solve. Um, let's, pour old, let's pour new wine out of old bottles, because old bottles are all we have. Uh, and the majority opinion is sensitive to that concern. Um, but again, I don't think it, it fully realizes that the way to deal with this is to just think more seriously and in a more principled way about how it is we understand what powers agencies have. And, la and this is particularly disappointing to have come from Chief Justice Roberts because he's pointed this out before in a case called Arlington versus, uh, City of Arlington versus FCC. He identified these principles, albeit in dissent. And in some respects, the biggest problem with Western University EPA was that perhaps the Chief Justice had decided they'd overturned enough cases this past term and they didn't want to overturn this obscure administrative law case in which he dissented before, but had he done so, we might have had a more workable doctrine uh, resulting from Western University EPA. And I apologize for going on too long and I will turn it back to you, Rob. Oh no. Oh, there we go. For efficiency's sake, I'll just stay here while he gets up there. Um, that was great stuff, Jonathan, and uh, some of those metaphors I really dug. Um, our next speaker, Ilya Soman, is uh, a professor of law at George Mason University. So by my count, you have authored or edited five books? Six. Six books. I, I, sorry, I stand corrected. Six books, um, nothing to sneeze at, um, on subjects uh, ranging from uh, uh, the democratic theory to uh, immigration rights. Um, I have it on good authority um, that Ilya organizes an annual Dungeons and Dragons game with his students that's sold at the Scalia Law Public Interest Auction. Um, I think that's pretty cool that both that you play Dungeons and Dragons and that you're using it for the forces of good. Um, but without further ado, Professor Soman, um, will present his article on the vaccine mandate cases. So that's NFIB the Occupational Safety and Health Administration, and also Biden v. Missouri. Thank you so much. Uh, thank you to Will for moderating the panel and Trevor for organizing this exciting event, continuing the theme of ties to the Pacific Legal Foundation. My wife, Allison, who will be here later today, actually works for POF, so uh, we have that going on. Uh, but my job here today is not to talk about POF's important work or even to talk about Dungeons and Dragons, though I expect they talk about D&D might actually be more interesting to at least some of the audience. Rather, my purpose is to talk about the two vaccine mandate cases that the Supreme Court decided back in January. And at the time, they were, as uh, President Biden said in other contests, a big effing deal uh, that drew a lot of reaction from people. But since then, we've kind of forgotten about them because the COVID pandemic fortunately, has waned somewhat since then. Uh, and uh, I don't know about you, but I heard rumors that there might have been some other Supreme Court cases that were decided later that caused even more controversy. Uh, so attention shifted away from these two decisions. Nonetheless, the decisions, I think, were actually important, both for their immediate policy consequences and for uh, their long-term implications for the future. 
Uh, and they addressed two COVID-19 vaccination mandates that the Biden administration issued in November of 2021 uh, in reaction to the Delta wave of the uh, COVID virus, which is obviously, as I'm sure most of you remember, more contagious uh, than the original version of the virus that we had had up until then. Uh, so the administration felt tremendous pressure to try to do something about this. They came up with these two mandates. Uh, one, uh, the Occupational Safety and Health Administration mandate uh, said that uh, any employer that employed more than 100 workers, they had to require those workers either to get vaccinated or to wear masks on the job and get tested for COVID-19 regularly. There were a few exceptions, but uh, this covered uh, some 84 million uh, workers, uh, it was estimated. Uh, the second uh, was issued by the Center for Medicare and Medicaid Services, and that required healthcare workers in facilities receiving federal uh, Medicare and Medicaid funds uh, to get vaccinated against the COVID. Uh, and this probably involved uh, up to several million workers uh, around the country. Uh, predictably, both of these mandates uh, were challenged in court very quickly by various groups, uh, including uh, red state governments, but also employer organizations uh, and others. Uh, and both of them rapidly made their way through the lower courts and then reached the Supreme Court in January under the so-called shadow docket, where the uh, Supreme Court can take cases on an accelerated basis before they've been fully litigated, before uh, even they get the usual uh, full briefing uh, in the Supreme Court. Uh, and on January 13th of this year, the Supreme Court issued decisions in both cases by a 6-3 margin. They struck down uh, the OSHA uh, vaccination mandate for large employers. Uh, on the other hand, they upheld the CMS mandate for the healthcare workers. I am one of the relatively small number of people who believe that the Supreme Court got both of these cases wrong. Uh, right, right. Uh, they were right, even though there were parts of the reasoning that were wrong. Uh, most people think either both mandates should have been upheld or both should have been struck down. Uh, but I think there are important differences between the two cases and the Supreme Court got the correct result in both of them, uh, even though I also think there were significant problems with some of the court's reasoning. Uh, so we'll talk first about the uh, OSHA case. Uh, this was the more sweeping of the two mandates and OSHA was trying to use uh, in a provision of the OSHA Act of 1970, which allows for so-called emergency test standard, uh, which and that uh, permits uh, OSHA to regulate on an emergency basis without going through normal notice and comment procedures. Uh, they can regulate threats where employees are, quote, exposed to grave danger from exposure to substances or agents determined to be toxic uh, or physically harmful, uh, or from new hazards. Uh, and this power had been used only a few times before, uh, from 1970 to the present, and courts generally had engaged in pretty aggressive judicial review. They struck down, at least in part, five of the nine previous uses of this authority. It had never been used in this kind of sweeping way, but obviously it was attractive to the Biden administration because you could do this relatively quickly, didn't have to do notice and comment, 
uh, and they thought they could squeeze this into the language. But the court, uh, with the conservative majority on the court, they weren't having this, uh, and they concluded two things. Uh, the first of which is that uh, the OSHA was wrong to think that the text of the emergency test standard ETS applies to this because they said the OSHA statute is not about general threats to public health. It's only limited to threats that uh, are specific to the workplace. And obviously the COVID pandemic, as we all know, applies in society generally. It's not really a specifically a workplace threat. Uh, I think there is an obvious problem uh, with this theory that the majority endorsed, and it was pointed out in the joint dissent by the three liberal justices, which is that nothing in the statute actually says uh, that ETS is limited to purely workplace threats. Uh, it, it, all that matters is that the threat, in fact, exists in the workplace. Under the text, nothing says that it shouldn't exist or it should exist at a lesser level uh, somewhere else. However, I think there's an alternative pathway uh, for striking down the, uh, this mandate that the majority missed, even though in the lower court, it was actually pointed out by Chief Judge Sutton of the Sixth Circuit, and that is to focus on the words grave danger. The majority uh, 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 recognizes as the uh, uh, as actually OSHA conceded uh, that they had found a grave danger to exist only for unvaccinated employees, not for the vaccinated. Does there's an easy way to avoid the grave danger, simply get vaccinated. And it seems like uh, if you, a, a danger can be very easily avoided, particularly at a time when vaccination was already readily available to almost anyone in the United States who wanted to get it, then it's hard to argue that there truly is a grave danger. If anything uh, can count as a grave danger uh, under this ETS, even if it's easy to avoid through very normal, simple, cheap precautions, uh, then ETS would give uh, OSHA the power to regulate almost any workplace activity of any kind, because almost anything we do, if we don't take basic minimal precautions, uh, or if we don't exercise common sense, it could potentially be dangerous. Walking down the stairs is dangerous if you don't look where you're going. Even drinking water could be dangerous if you uh, drink too much uh, or aren't aware of how you have to be careful not to choke on it or whatnot. Uh, so uh, I think this, the better way to go here would have been at least to find that uh, not that uh, the danger has to exist only in the workplace or primarily there, but rather that it's not a grave danger if it's easily avoided at little cost. And by OSHA's own analysis, that's the kind of danger that existed here. The, the majority also focuses, as in West Virginia versus EPA, <coughs> on the major questions doctrine. And they said, essentially, look, uh, the, uh, this is clearly a major question. It impacts over 80 million people. It could be disruptive to uh, a massive numbers of workplaces. And therefore, at the very least, uh, the doctrine applies here. And there's at least some ambiguity uh, over whether ETS really gives uh, OSHA the authority to impose this mandate and are in a major questions doctrine, which says that a major delegation like this can only be done if Congress spoke very clearly. Here, we don't have the requisite level of clarity. Uh, and I basically agree with that. I think while there certainly are fuzzy boundaries between what's a major question and what's a minor question, and the Supreme Court 
hasn't done a great job of explaining the difference. Uh, here, it's pretty obvious that it is a major question given the enormous scope of what OSHA was trying to do. Uh, I recognize, of course, that the major questions doctrine is itself controversial, whether it should be used or not. Uh, if you just reject the idea in general, then you would reject it here. But if you accept it, at least in some form, then I think this turns out to be a relatively easy case here, uh, given that uh, there is at least some ambiguity, some significant ambiguity about whether uh, ETS really gives OSHA this authority. Uh, and I do think also that as Justice Gorsuch points out in his concurring opinion in this case, uh, maybe the best way to look at major questions is as a tool for enforcing non-delegation. The idea that Congress cannot delegate the legislative power to the executive branch. Uh, and in principle, we could just go straight to the constitutional issue of non-delegation and not use the major questions doctrine, but in the imperfect world that we have, uh, courts may be unwilling to go as far as they should on that, uh, and major questions is a way to partially enforce it, while nonetheless giving Congress the ability to these delegations if it's clear enough. Uh, so I think, therefore, the OSHA case came out correctly, although in part for the wrong reasons. They, I think, missed the boat. Uh, on why this is not within the scope of the uh, ETS provision of the statute. Uh, the other vaccination mandate case is Biden versus Missouri, uh, which as I noted before, uh, was a mandate that healthcare workers at facilities receiving federal Medicare and Medicaid funds must be vaccinated uh, against the COVID. Uh, and this case uh, here, the court actually upheld the mandate by a five to four vote with the Chief Justice and Justice Kavanaugh joining the three liberal justices. Uh, and I think uh, this case, while you could say this is a pro-mandate case and the other one is anti-mandate, in reality, I think the two are actually quite consistent because here the legislative authorization for what uh, the administration did was simply much clearer. The relevant provisions of the statutes here uh, give CMS the power to impose conditions on grant recipients, which protect, quote, the health and safety of patients. Uh, and what counts as health and safety? Uh, it can be questionable in some cases, but I think it's pretty obvious here. You have here a deadly disease that is particularly dangerous uh, for people who are already sick, and especially for the elderly, particularly in Medicare facilities. By definition, uh, they're protecting uh, or they're serving patients who are older, uh, and therefore uh, requiring vaccination against this for healthcare staff is pretty obviously protecting health and safety. While the vaccinated can still get the disease and still spread it, uh, the amount of spread is significantly less than for the unvaccinated. In addition, if healthcare workers are vaccinated, if they do get the disease, they're less likely to get a serious case uh, and be uh, away from work for a long time. And that too protects patients uh, in pretty obvious ways. I would add that a very large and disproportionate percentage of all US fatalities from COVID were in fact in healthcare and long-term care facilities, nursing homes and the like. Uh, so, it's pretty obvious here that you do have an issue of health and safety, though I readily grant there might be some other cases where things are fuzzy uh, and maybe there would be reason to uh, question some other kinds of mandates which could come down. Uh, in his dissent, Justice Thomas 
uh, said, well, maybe these health and safety provisions, they only relate to administrative matters like organizing workplace schedules and the like, uh, and not to uh, substantive protections of health and safety like vaccination mandates. I talk about this a little bit in the article. I just don't think there's anything to support this uh, in the statute and the idea of this kind of distinction just uh, doesn't make a lot of sense. So although I think the court got this right, uh, I uh, worry, however, that uh, they missed some issues that they should have addressed. In particular, this is a conditional spending case and the Supreme Court and lower courts have a lot of jurisprudence on the issue of when uh, the executive can attach conditions to federal grants. Uh, in particular, they must, the conditions must be authorized by something that's unambiguously clear on the face of the statute. This issue was raised and so in the lower court litigation uh, that this case reviewed, uh, and it was mentioned in the briefs, totally ignored by both the majority and the dissenters. Uh, similarly, we have the federalism clear statement canon, which says that uh, when Congress uh, enacts legislation that upsets the usual balance between federal and state power, they have to speak very clearly, uh, clearly indicate that they're doing this. Public health and vaccination usually uh, is a matter for the states historically in our system, not for the federal government. Uh, the Supreme Court blew past this issue as well. It is briefly raised in Justice Thomas's dissent. The majority doesn't bother to respond to it. In my view, if you take these things into account, the case should still come out the same way for, because I think vaccination against a deadly disease in healthcare facilities pretty clearly is unambiguous. Uh, and falls within the health and safety requirement. Uh, and I think that would deal with these issues on both the spending clause and the clear statement canon, but the court should have addressed these matters and they didn't bother uh, and that's uh, unfortunate. So, and I, I know I have only a minute or two left. Uh, I just like to briefly note the broader implications uh, of these two cases. Uh, I think the OSHA case, strengthens the major question doctrine and indirectly the non-delegation doctrine. And it does so in conjunction with other cases like West Virginia versus EPA and also the eviction moratorium case. Uh, the case also makes clear that emergency powers will be subject to serious judicial review. And that's important that just because you're using emergency power doesn't mean you get a free pass for the courts. Uh, the COVID emergency hopefully is ending, hopefully, but there will be others in the future. And this is an important uh, issue. Obviously, uh, this decision was also significant because it did strike down a big sweeping mandate. Interesting, the majority did leave room explicitly for narrower workplace vaccination mandates uh, in places where there's a special risk where the COVID risk is higher in the workplace than elsewhere. Uh, but for whatever reason, the Biden administration did not take them up on this and didn't try to craft a narrower rule. One would have thought that if this was as important as the administration claimed, uh, they, would, they might have at least tried to do that. Biden versus Missouri is also a significant case. Uh, it makes clear that you can use the CMS power uh, with the, on the conditional spending to require vaccination mandates and not just uh, purely administrative rules. Uh, there are other diseases going around where there might be a case for requiring vaccination for healthcare workers, maybe even the monkeypox, which we've been talking about this summer. Uh, you know, that might be an example of that. If not, there are likely other situations. Uh, so I think 
the implications here are significant and the court got both cases right, but they also clearly flubbed important points of the analysis in both cases. Uh, and I do think that strengthens uh, or bolsters solid criticism that the court's use of the shadow docket has been subject to and that one possible reason why they flubbed these things is that they were working on this really accelerated schedule. Uh, they were almost like the students who, uh, you know, the night before an exam, they do all their studying or they finish the paper in the wee hours of the morning right before it's due. I'm sure none of you would make mistakes as a result of this, uh, but some students do, and the Supreme Court justices uh, may be the same way. So I don't know that there's a good solution to this. Sometimes you do have to hear cases on an accelerated basis, uh, but this is part of the cost of doing so. Uh, so more could be said about these cases, but for now I conclude and I look forward to the discussion and questions. Thank you. Thank you. So, thank you so much, Ilya. That was great. Um, our third and final speaker, Jennifer Mascott, is an assistant professor of law and co- or assistant professor of uh, Assistant Professor of Law at the Anton Antonin Scalia Law School and Co-Executive Director of the C. Borden Gray Center for the Study of the Administrative State. Titles are a mouthful. Um, Jennifer has one of those resumes that depresses me um, with feeling, I mean, you know, it just overwhelms me with feelings of inadequacy. She's accomplished so much. Um, she has served at the highest levels of government across all three branches. Um, I'll say this, in the course of researching this introduction, um, someone I, whose opinion I esteem very much said that Jennifer is going to become um, the greatest, most important voice in administrative law of her generation, conservative voice. Um, and that was profound criticism. I'm, I'm sorry, profound, uh, good, good gracious. I'm sorry, that was a profound compliment. It, it, it came from someone um, whose opinion really matters. Um, but I'll note this as well. Jennifer is undoubtedly the only professor in the country who teaches not one course with Supreme Court justice, but two courses with Supreme Court justices annually, um, Justices Kavanaugh and Thomas. Um, so that's pretty neat. That's quite a feather in her cap. Without further ado, uh, Professor Mascott will present her article on Egbert v. Bull. All right, thank you so much for uh, having me. Good morning to everybody. Um, and actually, the last time that I was here speaking at the Constitution Day event for Cato was in 2018, right in the middle of the confirmation proceedings for Justice Kavanaugh. And I think the theme uh, of this particular panel, Constitutional Accountability and Structure, is quite significant because it's been important to the, to the court this past term. I think it'll be important uh, many years to come. And I think with the advent of Justice Kavanaugh, and now Justice Barrett um, to the bench and all the other changes, including um, Justice Breyer's retirement and Ju Justice Jackson's advent to the bench. The kinds of opinions that we're going to be seeing in these areas are going to you know, be changing and the court's going to be more forward leaning on accountability and structure. So my co-panelists have been able to talk about very grand um, opinions from the term West Virginia versus EPA and the emergency dockets cases um, at, at, the, at the very beginning of the year. My case in comparison is quite uh, modest, Egbert versus Boulay. I think uh, everybody could have easily predicted the way that the court was gonna rule in this case. And I should thank Cato for even having me here because I probably am unusual in that I, um, suggested and pitched the idea of writing an article on Egbert versus Boulay to the Cato Supreme 
court review folks, and they were generous to let me do that relatively last minute, and also because I filed an amicus brief in the case on the opposite side that I think Cato's position would have been in the case. But I think in spirit and in principle, we hold uh, a similar view on these issues. So um, I do think a major theme, and I, and I think Abert versus Boulay ties into what I see as a major theme of accountability from this past term, which picks up the theme of who decides, which institution in our government is to decide important questions. Chief Judge Jeff Sutton, I think, first coined the phrase or brought it more to the forefront in his book, Who Decides Dealing with the um, Axis of Federal versus State Power. But the court this past term, I think, spent an awful lot of time thinking about uh, executive branch versus the courts versus Congress. And obviously, the first two presentations today um, dealt with the axis a lot of Congress. What is it authorizing the executive branch or administrative agencies to do? Egbert versus Boulay touches more on Congress versus the courts. Um, it just dealt with a relatively modern um, Bivens case. Bivens, as you all know, is the doctrine that essentially from the text of the Constitution itself, if one is bringing a constitutional challenge against a federal officer, that the Constitution itself needs to contain a remedy, and therefore monetary damages remedies can be inferred directly from the text of the Constitution. This was somewhat a groundbreaking idea in um, 1971 uh, originated in the Supreme Court, I think itself. But it, it, where I where I think I and Cato agree is that historically the theme of accountability was um, really important, and the mechanism of being able to sue officers actually was seen as an important mechanism for accountability. So just to sort of back up. Um, Often when the court is looking at cases involving constitutional accountability and structure, at least over the last decade, it's looking at accountability within the governmental structure itself. So who is supposed to appoint an officer? Who is supposed to remove an officer? Can Congress limit removal protections? We didn't really have cases like that this last term. Um, we had this case, Egbert versus Boulay, which is looking at can the public or mechanisms outside of the government help to keep accountability for government officers? So obviously elections are an important mechanism for accountability, potentially impeachment and conviction, although if you look historically, um, I, I believe you know impeachment has been successful less than you know fewer than two dozen times. Conviction obviously much fewer. It's very hard even for Congress to successfully impeach and convict a president who is charged with attacking the co-equal branch physically. And so perhaps that's not as effective of a remedy as the framers of the founding generation would have thought. There was a lot of evidence um, at the time of ratification, however, that the uh, folks who were signing onto the Constitution, approving its ratification route, thought that the mechanism of state common law liability for federal officer misdeeds, or just general officer misdeeds, was going to remain in place. And a number of scholars recently have written about how these um, common law actions were to work. Professor Bode has written some, Professor Jerry Mashaw, Professor Amar has touched on this in, in his scholarship. And there was definitely an idea that um, folks were gonna be accountable or be able to be sued for or misdeeds, but it was gonna arise in a way that's quite distinct, I think, or at least this was what my brief argued, um, from the Bivens relief that the court tried to derive from the Constitution um, in the 1970s. Essentially, you know, um, uh, somebody would bring a common law action, maybe for trespass, that kind of thing, and a federal officer would claim lawfulness 
of the search or the trespass in defense. And then the question would come up whether that you know, it could come up in the course of arguing the defense, whether it was a constitutionally valid action or not. Um, unfortunately, um, over the years, depending on your perspective, Congress has actually taken a lot of action, most significantly uh, recently in the Westfall Act, to essentially preempt the ability to be able to bring these kinds of actions against officers. And so there's really a great need, if one believes in this kind of accountability being necessary, um, perhaps for the Supreme Court to be able to um, approve or grant Bivens relief. But going to the theme of who decides, you know, Congress um, taking this liability away, perhaps the court should not be able to grant it back. And that's certainly the current Supreme Court's position. So I think Egbert versus Boulay in the end was a relatively modest holding because the litigants, uh, Williams and Connolly, uh, represented by Sarah Harris, um, had first asked the court to take up the issue of the constitutionality of Bivens' actions. Clearly, the court's been uneasy with it. Justice Thomas mentions, ultimately, his majority opinion in the case that on 11 occasions in the past 40 years, the court has beaten back um, extensions of Bivens' relief. Um, but the court didn't want to bite on that uh, question, maybe because it didn't think it was necessary in this case, maybe because it had a sense that it was going to be um, reversing or overturning precedent in other more uh, pressing areas and didn't want to do too much in one term. Uh, so the case ends up being relatively uh, modest. It's an interesting factual pattern, though. Um, a gentleman has an inn near the, near the U.S.-Canadian border. He's known to smuggle um, folks unlawfully entering the country, drugs, um, using his inn. He's unabashed about it. He drives around with a license plate with the word smuggler on the back of it. So he, perhaps unsurprisingly, is you know, detained or searched by border agents who he accuses of slamming him against his SUV and then retaliating when he reports this. And so he's trying to get administrative relief. It doesn't work. He brings a Bivens claim. And this case makes its way to the Supreme Court simply because the Ninth Circuit, as it has a tendency to do, you know, sort of blows by the court's most recent approach to Bivens claims and grants his Fourth Amendment excessive force claim for relief and First Amendment retaliation claim. And Basically, on the, de on the denial of the First Amendment retaliation claim, all of the justices were unified. Um, five justices were in majority with Justice Thomas saying the Fourth Amendment claim even was an unlawful extension of Bivens because it came up in a new factual scenario. And, um, and um, then Justice Gorsuch um, is in the middle concurring but saying we should have given more reconsideration to Bivens and then the three uh, three justices are in dissent on the denial of the Fourth Amendment claim. But I think this case sort of illustrates that Bivens is just not in the foreseeable future going to obviously be a, a form of relief for um, litigants. Congress probably perhaps will have to or should to the extent that folks think that not only were claims against officers constitutionally, for mon monetary damages constitutionally permissible, but some think constitutionally required because of the need for accountability and the, and the previous history. Um, Congress perhaps will need to or should be a place to revisit this. Certainly, it's, I think the court um, has, has demonstrated that its doors are going to be closed to this kind of relief in the future. So if this is not going to be um, an avenue for reconsideration of constitutional accountability in the court moving forward, how will accountability and structure continue to arise as themes? I think the current court um, is going to continue to take more and more cases 
with kind of the more grand Article II related constitutional accountability uh, uh, themes. I think it's going to be cases that look more similar to the ones that Professor Adler and Professor uh, Stoneman talked about today. I think perhaps in the near term, we're gonna see uh, even more reconsideration of appointments of removal, we'll see. I mean, the court has two cases this year dealing with administrative agencies. Um, Axon and Cochran, but they're dealing with jurisdictional components. They're not probably going to get to the core of how um, administrative actors should be kept accountable by their supervisors or by the president um, through removal. Um, but there are cases percolating in the lower courts that might press um, this modern court or this current court to make some more um, far-reaching decisions. We'll see. I mean, I think the Chief Justice has been pretty... Um, capable of being able to stay within past precedent and try to reach uh, issue rulings in a lot of these constitutional accountability cases that are relatively narrow, leaving big precedents like Humphrey's executor um, on the books. But uh, we'll, see, we'll see what happens. There's obviously the, um, the Jarkissi versus SEC case in the Fifth Circuit um, making some delegation and administrative adjudication related claims. Um, I, you all can tell me if this is not right. As of last Friday, the, um, the petition for rehearing had not been acted on. I don't know if it's been acted on yet. So that, that may have a rehearing component before it goes up to the Supreme Court. But that could actually challenge or bring a, bring a merits challenge to um, the removal protections for um, SEC commissioners and then even the amount of discretion perhaps that commissioners have in terms of bringing enforcement proceedings in-house versus um, into court. Another case that I think that's percolating that could be interesting, we'll see how it goes, um, is just brought fairly recently. Walmart has challenged, or I'm sorry, the FTC brought a complaint against Walmart and Walmart in its motion to dismiss the complaint um, has raised some constitutional arguments that have at least been um, risen to the level of interest of the Wall Street Journal, which editorialized on the case last week. And it has some very high profile litigants. And so I can tell you sort of what the, briefly what the arguments and claims are. It's got the former head of the civil appellate division for the Trump administration. And then a for, uh, Hash Mupan, who's also a, was a Ludic Scalia clerk, teamed up with um, Ramon Martinez, a former assistant solicitor general, Kavanaugh and Roberts clerk who's at Latham together with Walmart on this motion to dismiss. So it's a lot of big names. So I think I would imagine think the case is going to uh, move forward. But the claim there is actually trying to uh, distinguish Humphrey's executor completely from the modern FTC and say that Humphrey's executor really does not govern the removal protections of the current FTC because what the FTC is doing now is much more executive according to the court's recent decisions in SALA law or a free enterprise fund, and therefore the uh, preservation of the removal protections for quasi-legislative and quasi-judicial action in the 1930s era FTC um, no longer can be um, reconciled with what the agency's doing. So we'll see. Um, the FTC's approach so far has been to kind of oppose amicus support in the case, and I don't know how, how much... Um, firepower the case will have in the district court, which obviously is bound by precedent. But I think in the years to come, um, in these areas of structure within the executive branch and between Congress and executive, we'll see a lot more play, even though as of this last term, the court has shown a lot more hesitance in re-evaluating uh, the balance of power between Congress and the court itself. Excellent. Um, thank you very much, Jennifer. Uh, you 
She de- that was incredible. There, a car alarm goes off halfway through, and you maintained your composure and even delivery. Very impressive. Um, I will exercise. Well, first, I'll remind online viewers, please send in your questions, and those get beamed to me right here. Um, and uh, before we open up questions to the audience and people online, I will exercise the moderator's privilege. Um, Jennifer, so the uh, Bivens uh, gutted, Federal Tort Claims Act gutted, um, and the Westfall Act you know, uh, precludes state torts, which, as I learned from your article, um, that was the remedy at the founding era. Is it only Congress that can go about limiting the Westfall Act? And I, I don't know here, but are there any arguments to be made that this utter absence of access to the courts to vindicate one's rights or to pursue a tort um, have been, you know, all these avenues have been effectively clo- closed off. I mean, that is to say, are there constitutional arguments to be made against Westfall, the Westfall Act itself, or are the courts now out of it? And it truly is up to Congress to... Well, I mean, I... Well, sure. I mean, Congress could obviously revisit the Westfall. I, I guess I should have... I mean, I, sure, I think somebody could perhaps bring a challenge to the constitutionality. Of, I mean, if, if, if there's... I mean, there hasn't been a strategy with that yet, but sure. I mean, that would obviously be another way to go about it. Whether the court would, um, you know, agree or how that would be framed, I mean, I think is a good... I think is a good question, but sure. I mean, sure. If 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 I mean, if if they're not going to grant relief through Bivens, and one thinks it's constitutionally required, but of course you would have to make the showing, which I'm not sure. I mean, I think a lot of scholarship has shown the historical practice of the of the lawsuits existing. I think folks are just starting to make the arguments that the relief is constitutionally required. I mean, there are folks on many. Uh, points along the spectrum. I think of scholarship who might agree, even. Um, even um, the Center for the Study of Constitutional Religion, uh, Originalism out in San Diego, not Mike, Michael Ramsey, for example, has written a little bit about this, but I think um, probably there would need to be more work done on the litigation side and study to make that kind of strong claim. Interesting. Um, thank you for that answer. Um, I'll offer the opportunity to panelists, any cross questions you have for one another? I mean, um, I mean along these lines, I guess I'll throw in a question. Ilya, uh, you had mentioned that uh, uh, one of the vaccine mandates, NFIB, presents this obvious major question. Um, Could you speak to Jonathan's criticism of the major questions doctrine that that discerning major from minor is a a real methodological killer? So it's a problem, but the law is full of doctrines where the boundaries are fuzzy. The boundary between a reasonable search and seizure and an unreasonable one or the many areas of law where something like reasonability or whatnot is a standard. So while I think uh, the court can and should do more to explicate where this boundary between the major and the minor is, I also think there are many cases where it's pretty clear uh, whether it's major or not. Uh, I think the OSHA vaccine mandate case is pretty clear an example where it's major. Uh, The nationwide eviction moratorium case decided last fall Uh, Also, it's pretty clear that it was major. On the other hand, there's a vast range of government regulations and and other kinds of laws where it's pretty obviously minor. Uh, So uh, I recognize there's a long-standing debate uh, between people who say, 
you know, everything in the law or as much as possible be gathered by, governed by bright line rules versus people who say standards are more acceptable. But even the biggest champions of bright line rules, like the late Justice Scalia, uh, still accepted standards in a wide range of situations. And it may be, at least for the moment, uh, that having a standard is the best we can do in this area. Uh, I think over time, maybe uh, the court should more fully revive and explicate the non-delegation doctrine, uh, and more of these kinds of issues could be dealt with directly under non-delegation as opposed to more indirectly through uh, major questions. But here is in a lot of places, the best should not be the enemy of the good. So we have an imperfect and flawed and sometimes fuzzy major questions doctrine uh, and you know that can be worked on and improved uh, but it's still better than uh, having an anything goes rule where uh, there's no limit whatsoever to delegations and where even relatively vague uh, statutes uh, can be read to uh, delegate vast amounts of power to the executive's sole discretion as I discussed in my article even if you trust the Biden administration with this kind of discretion do you trust Donald Trump or whoever the next Republican president might be? And if you trust the Republicans, do you trust the Democrats? I think the answer to both of these questions for many people is going to be no. Uh, and you know that's one reason why some sort of major questions doctrine uh, is desirable, and it shouldn't just be simply left uh, to the political process. Jonathan? Yeah, so um, let me, um, I guess, just like kind of clarify where I think Ilya and I agree and disagree. First of all, I agree with him on, on both the, the COVID cases and that the court reached the right outcome in both of them. I also agree with him that um, the OSHA case in particular, was the opinion was not as strong as it could have been, among other things. Um, say, claiming that it was about workplace safety uh, due to the threat of uh, a disease and then defining the rules applicability based on the number of people on the payroll um, I mean, that should have just been I mean, that should have been recognized as arbitrary and capricious. Um, you don't even need to get to the larger questions. I mean, not there was not even an effort to even say how many people are in the same building, let alone you know ventilation within the same workspace. Yeah, you know, anything that would correlate with actual exposure. So a a firm, a ninety nine person firm where everyone's in a single room, cheek to jowl, not covered. A firm of 101 people were, where um, folks work remotely 90% of the time uh, or, or because of time shifting are rarely in the same place together would be covered. I mean, it's just it's not a serious um, effort to use the authority that OSHA was actually given to address the problem that OSHA was given, the sort of problem that OSHA was given that authority to address. Well, the major question thing, you know, there are, there are bad criticisms of the major questions doctrine in these opinions that I think Ilya and I both reject. One of the bad criticisms is the idea that it was just made up um, in the last year or even the last 10 years or even in FDA versus Brown and Williamson. Uh, that's simply not true. Um, uh, the idea, while the court had not used the phrase major questions doctrine in a majority opinion, the idea uh, had been well grounded in prior cases uh, particularly the administrative law context, um, and going back even before FDA versus Brown and Williamson. Um, so if the concern is, you know, should the court should just, you know, not be inventing new doctrines, that's not a fair criticism of either of these cases, because the court had been doing this um, in a range of cases um, 
uh, and in ways that are particularly applicable to both of these cases. That is, taking a regulatory structure and repurposing it or refashioning it. Um, you see that in Scalia's opinion in the MCI case uh, in the 90s, for example. Um, my concern is more that there's no principled reason why we want to have this on-off switch between major and minor delegations of power. Um, uh, and in fact, try that trying to make that somewhat rule-like, I think, really risks a lot of arbitrary results. Something that's actually more standard-like and more kind of, of a gradient that just recognizes the bigger the claimed power, the more robust we would expect the evidence that that power was delegated to exist. Again, it's the sort of thing that used to be understood in statutory interpretation, um, the sort of thing that has roots in basic agency law. It produces a standard, but it produces a sort of inquiry that we can expect courts to do reasonably well. Um, expecting courts to do the sort of major questions doctrine that, that we see in, in these two cases, where it's this kind of on-off switch at the very beginning of the inquiry. Do you go in the major questions box, where the agency is almost certain to lose, or do you go in the not major questions box, where we just do the normal statutory interpretation? Front-loading that sort of inquiry creates really bad incentives for litigants, as we're already seeing in briefs that are filed in a range of cases now, and gives lower courts a task that just isn't to their comparative advantage of, you know, well, is this a big enough, is this expensive enough? Is that, and so, you know, from the standpoint of courts have been doing this major questions thing, and so it's obviously something that's be part of the mix, I get that. Um, I think unlike lower courts, um, and I agree with Ilya that the Sixth Circuit, uh, the, the Sutton opinion below, uh, the dissent below was a much better opinion than, than the Supreme Court's opinion. Um, you know, lower courts clearly have to make this part of the mix. The Supreme Court, though, had the opportunity to clarify, refine, and ground the doctrine in a more principled way, and it missed that opportunity. And that's the sort of thing you can criticize the Supreme Court for, even if you if it's not fair to criticize a lower court for that. And and they really missed that opportunity. And and I think it's going to make things harder for lower courts. Just very quickly, I don't necessarily disagree with most of what Jonathan said. I would merely note, though, that if you replace the binary standard with a continuum, as I think Jonathan would like us to do, if I understand him correctly, you would perhaps get more fuzziness rather than less because there would be questions of, like, how do we figure out where on the continuum we are? Uh, at what rate does the sort of degree of difficulty increase for the government and so on? So that would still be a standard-based yeah. approach, not a rule-based approach, and it would still create fuzziness. Uh, whether it would be on balance better than a binary approach, I'm, I'm just not sure. Uh, I would want to see, you know, if, if, the, if the Supreme Court were to adopt that approach, I'd be interested to see how lower courts would actually try to apply it to cases. Some good back and forth. Um, all right, so uh, we, we have six minutes left. Any audience? Do we have questions from the audience? Uh, please, yes, sir, right there. And are they, I think they're That's bringing the microphone to you, my friend. Uh, so to your question to Professor Mascott about the Westfall Act, um, I'm Akhil Amar. Um, here's actually what my answer would be, um, and it puts Bivens in a larger context. Um, and I think folks at Cato should like this. So let, let's see if we can um, get some uh, consensus. First principles. For every right, there should be a remedy. That's Blackstone and Marbury. Second premise, Constitution 
recognize his rights against the government itself. Not just against government officers, but against the government itself. So there should be remedies against the government itself. Um, um, that was part of the driving force of Bivens. Bivens shouldn't be cutting, cut, cut back. It should be expanded. Um, now, if the Westfall Act is cutting off all the other remedies, I mean, it's not providing full remedies itself. Oh, there's a problem there, you see. Um, and that's the constitutional argument. Now, um, Bivens itself had three tributaries, and one has dried up, but the other two remain quite robust. One thing that Bivens said, and I commend all of you, to all of you, Justice Harlan's concurrent, concurring opinion, Bivens, where he actually said, hey, I changed my mind on this. Um, and when a justice says that, especially someone as thoughtful as Harlan, we should pay attention to it. Here were the three tributaries. One, we have implied causes of action for statutes. Why not for the Constitution, which, because it doesn't partake of the prolixity of a legal code, isn't going to always tell you who can sue for what and how. Well, implied causes of action for statutes are dried up. But the argument was, if you do it for statutes, a fortiori for the Constitution. Okay, that tributary is dried up. But here are the other two. If you can have direct causes of action against the government itself um, under ex parte young, even if there's no common law tort, because merely initiating prosecution isn't a common law tort under unconstitutional statute. If you can have injunctive relief under the Constitution, why not for damages? And that's still robust. Um, although the SB8 Act, um, SB8 controversy kind of complicates that a little bit. But here's the other one unique to the Fourth Amendment. The Fourth Amendment now clearly goes beyond state common law trespass. In the 1960s, that was the Katz case. Even though there's not a trespass, there might be a Fourth Amendment violation if there's surveillance, for example. That's been built on Kylo by Justice Scalia, you know, pointing a, a, a ray gun at a house for thermal imaging, uh, the GPS case of Jones, uh, uh, phone searches cases um, like um, uh, California versus Riley. So if the Fourth Amendment right goes beyond mere state law trespass, and it does today, even if it didn't at the founding, Fourth Amendment remedies should likewise go beyond mere trespass. And if state law isn't going to you know, do it, we should actually have um, a direct remedy under the Constitution. But at a minimum, when the Westfall Act takes away traditional state remedies and doesn't give you alter alternative, it's violating the Blackstone idea, the, the Marbury idea. You see, that's the argument. And when also we and this is another Cato idea. I think we shouldn't have these broad uh, qualified immunities and, and all the rest. We should have full remedies for constitutional rights. I think that's something that should unite left and right, especially those who are interested in limited government. So let's see if we can make it happen. That's music to my ears. Uh, Jennifer, do you have anything to say to that? No worries if not. Oh, no, 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 I really appreciate Professor Amar. Um, weighing in. I think that's that's great. And of course, qualified immunity is obviously a very um, robust area of scholarship. And um, I also think Professor Amar um, speaking up and walking through that goes to a point I was making it at a conference that Jonathan and I were at last Friday, which is that um, this is like just a litigation point. I'm a humble law professor, so maybe don't take my word for it. But um, to the extent that folks here with groups and filing litigation, often I think groups like Cato and others are filing just for themselves. I think actually it seems like the court is, um, or courts are interested in individual law professor and other uh, clients 
arguments. And so to the extent that someone like a Professor Amar or others writing in these areas, you could have as your client on your brief, I think it's quite could be effective in getting the courts to take a closer look because um, academic arguments, particularly by um, sole uh, professors making an argument uh, in their own name for which they have to take complete um, blame or credit for its uh, validity, I think is a lot more compelling, uh, dare I say it, than just another, you know, one of the 50 or 100 interest group briefs that the group filed that particular year. So, right. excellent. Excellent. Um, well, we got 23 seconds left. Does anyone... <laughs> Does anyone have a very, very, very brief question? Devin, can you do it? Can you make a 20-second question? Uh, so, for the, so for the Federal Tort Claims Act, uh, if that remedy is available, do you think that is sufficient? Uh, or um, should this unconstitution of the Westfall Act still apply? I mean, no, I, I think to the extent that one believes that there needs to be you know, monetary damages relief or should be available and that one thinks courts would sign on to or are or comfortable with the broader scope of Fourth Amendment rights, that you would be, Westfall Act would be um, still, its constitutionality would still be relevant. I mean, of course, Professor Amar's arguments, it seems to me, do partly, not completely, but partly hinge on the court accepting or being comfortable with the more expansive scope of the Fourth Amendment. Obviously, I think some of the same justices who are peeling back Bivens are going to be uneasy about where we are with Fourth Amendment jurisprudence. So there's a number of, um, you know, hills to climb there. But no, I think the Westfall Act, re-examining it is, is of utmost importance in this area. Here, here again. All right. Well, please, let's give a, a round of applause to our panelists. That was great stuff. <laughs>